Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 135 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, how is Jesus like a bronze serpent on a pole? So, hello, everybody, and happy Tuesday to you. Welcome into the most ridiculous and yet profoundly titled episode of the Bible Reading Podcast. If the end of the world happens today, or a cure for coronavirus is announced, or World War III somehow begins between the Bulgarians and the elite warriors of Burkina Faso, and you're wondering why in the world I'm not commenting on that in the intro, well, it's because I'm recording this episode early on Monday morning, ahead of time. I think it's the first time I've recorded two episodes in one day, but, you know, after 135 episodes, they all sort of run together in my mind. Today's Bible readings consist of Numbers 21, our second straight day with Numbers as the focus passage, plus Psalm 60 through 61, Isaiah 10, verse 5 through verse 34, and James chapter 4. And our focus question of the day is not quite as outrageous as it sounds, because it's Jesus himself that makes the comparison between him and the bronze snake on the pole of Numbers 21. So let's go read that passage. Uh, By the way, warning, if you're at all scared of snakes, this one is going to give you the chills. And we're going to read Jesus' reference to that story in John chapter 3. And then we're going to go to our friend Tim Keller, and we're going to discuss what in the world all of this means. Numbers chapter 21, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When the the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming on the Atharim road, he fought against Israel and captured some prisoners. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord, If you will hand this people over to us, we will completely destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's request and handed the Canaanites over to them, and Israel completely destroyed them and their cities. So they named the place Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever was someone, someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. The Israelites set out and camped at Oboth. They set out from Oboth and camped at Eri Abram in the wilderness that borders Moab on the east. From there, they went and camped at Zerad Valley. They set out from there and camped on the other side of the Arnon River in the wilderness that extends from the Amorite border because the Arnon was the Moabite border between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is stated in the book of the Lord's Wars, Wahab and Sufa and the ravines of Arnon, even the slopes of the ravines that extend to the site of Ar, and lie along the border of Moab. From there they went to Beer, the well the Lord told Moses about. Gather the people so I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, well, sing to it. The princes dug the well. The nobles of the people hollowed it out with a scepter and with their staffs. They went from the wilderness to Matana, from Natana to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Barmoth, from Barmnoth to the valley in the territory of Moab near the Pisgah highlands that overlook the wasteland. 
Israel sent messengers to say to King Sihon of the Amorites, Let us travel through your land. We won't go into the fields or vineyards. We won't drink any well water. We will travel the king's highway until we have traveled through your territory. But Sihon would not let the Israel travel through his territory. Instead, he gathered his whole army and went out to confront Israel in the wilderness. When he came to Jehaz, he fought against Israel. Israel struck him with the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, but only up to the Ammonite border because it was fortified. Israel took all the cities and lived in all these Amorite cities, including Heshbon and all its surrounding villages. Heshbon was the city of King Sihon of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken control of all his land as far as the Arnon. Therefore the poets say, Come to Heshbon, let it be rebuilt. Let the city of Sihon be restored, for the fire came out of Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon, it consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, Moab, you have been destroyed, people of Chemosh. He gave up his sons as refugees and his daughters into captivity to Sihon the Amorite king. He threw them, we threw them down. Heshbon has been destroyed as far as Debon. We caused desolation as far as Nophah, which reaches as far as Mediba. So Israel lived in the Amorites' land. After Moses spent, sent spies to Jetzer, Israel captured its surrounding villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up the road to Bashan, and King Og of Bashan came out against them with his whole army to do battle at Edril. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have handed him over to you along with his whole army and his land. Do to him as you did to King Sihon of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. So they struck him, his sons, and his whole army until no one was left, and they took possession of his land. So, because I'm about to take a short trip to Colorado, I'm going to be leaning into my preacher friends a little more over these next couple of episodes, and today that's great news for you. Because our old friend Tim Keller is going to help us understand why Jesus is comparing himself to the bronze snake. And honestly, this is an incredible message. So Keller writes, On every truck, plaque, uniform, building that has anything to do with medicine, hospitals, doctors, etc., you will see an insignia with a serpent usually coiled around a pole. It's called the caduceus. It's the symbol of healing. It's one of the very oldest symbols of healing we know. You've seen it thousands of times in your life. Do you know what it points to? Do you know what all of the medical facilities of this entire country are referring to? They're referring to the incident which we've just read that is one of the most bizarre incidents anywhere in the Bible. It's a story about an episode in the life of the children of Israel in which they began to really complain against God, to impute evil motives to God, to be very unhappy with the way in which God was treating them. God responds by sending into their midst a plague of poisonous serpents that bite the Israelites. They begin to die and they pray and God hears the prayer and he says to Moses, here's how I'm going to cure them. Put a bronze serpent on a pole. Now the poles in all of the symbols are really a cross without a top piece. It's like a T, says Keller, a cross without a top piece and one or two snakes entangled around it. Put it up so anyone who looks at it will be healed of their disease. If you look at that, if we didn't have any other interpretation of that, it would honestly be a really confusing story. First of all, God looks vindictive. The people are bellyaching, they're complaining, they're unhappy and with the desert situation, and God sends these serpents, and he looks kind of vindictive. Second, 
He looks sort of impulsive and indecisive because he seems to change his mind. They pray, and then he says, okay, okay, I'll heal you. Thirdly, he seems kind of petty. This is God. Can't he say, you're healed? What's with the bronze serpent? How weird to make them look on the very thing that was killing them in order to save them. If you read the whole thing, you say, it seems to mean nothing. It makes no sense. Except that Jesus Christ points back And because Jesus Christ said this and showed the meaning of it, that's the reason why this symbol is emblazoned on all the medical technology and places of medicine and healing in the world. He said in John chapter 3, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Then right after that, Jesus says, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So whenever you see a hospital, whenever you see an ambulance truck or something, and you see the snake around the pole, do you think right away, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life? You should, because that's what it means. You say, well, how does it mean that? What Jesus is saying, and what Numbers is saying, and what God is saying in this whole incident is that there is only one disease that can really kill you. There's only one disease that can kill you, and that disease has one and only remedy. This disease is sin, and the remedy is the Son of Man, Jesus, lifted up. So God has shown them that there's a provision for healing. God says to the Israelites, put a bronze snake up on a pole. What does that mean? If there had only been one snake, And the snake was sort of slithering around and biting lots and lots of people and they were getting sick and then it was going away. Everybody would be upset. Well, what would they do? The only way anybody could rest and be at peace again would be if some hunter came in and found that snake. Snake. And as the hunter was going in, everybody was scared. You had to watch where you were going and all of that. Well, what if the hunter caught the snake, crushed the snake and killed it? The only way to bring hope back to the camp, well, what would the hunter do? You know what you would do. You'd put, the hunter would put the snake up on the pole in which he killed it, and he would lift it up and parade it around the camp. And then everybody would know that the snake had been captured and destroyed and was dead now. Everyone would look at the snake and say, ah, we have hope again. What God is saying to the Israelites, not to us, Uh, by putting that snake up is, I am the one who heals you. I am the one who can stop the snakes and heal you of the poison. I am the hunter. I have the power. I am the one who puts the snake up on the pole. Look to me, not the snake so much. To look to the snake is to look to me. Look to me in my power. Look to me in my mercy and you'll be healed. And that's what they did. What God was saying was, I am the one who heals you. I'm the one who destroyed the snake. Have hope in me. But Jesus goes further and says, let me tell you what it really meant. As the snake in the wilderness was lifted up, so I will be lifted up. So the first thing it means is that Jesus will die. A lifted up on a pole snake was a dead snake. A lifted up on a pole snake was a crushed snake. A lifted up snake on a pole was a snake that had been smitten. For Jesus Christ to be lifted up, did not just mean he went up the steps or something. He says, as the snake in the wilderness was lifted up, so I will be lifted up, which means I will be die. I will die. I will be smitten. I will be crushed. But it goes beyond that. He doesn't just say I'm going to die. Here's what he says. 
he says, I will die as the serpent. What is the serpent? Well, the serpent is sin. The serpent is Satan. The serpent is not just Satan. It represents the whole thing. It represents the evil that fell into our hearts. It represents the seed of the serpent in us. It represents the mistrust of God, the rebelliousness and the thirst. It represents all the things, says Keller, sin is and all the things sin deserves. Therefore, when Jesus says, I will be lifted up as the serpent, I will be struck, I will be destroyed, I will die, but I won't just die, I will die as the snake, I will die in the place of the serpent. You notice in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul does not say God made Jesus Christ sinful. Of course, God couldn't have made Jesus Christ sinful. If Jesus Christ had been sinful, if he had become selfish and wicked and picky as we are, he would have never gone to the cross. He would have loved us to the he never would have loved us to the end. What it says is God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It doesn't say he made him sinful. He made him sin. It doesn't made him mean he made him a serpent. It means he made him as a serpent. He treated him as the serpent should be treated. God treated Jesus as sin should be treated. Now you know why when Jesus was on the cross and what he meant when he said, I thirst. Do you remember when Jesus said, I thirst on the cross? It wasn't just a physical thirst. He was taking upon himself hell. Do you know what hell is? Do you remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Do you remember the place where the rich man goes to hell? It says he was burning up with thirst and he prayed to Father Abraham. I see Lazarus up in there in heaven. Could he please bring me some water? He prays the prayer of thirst. It's not because of the fire, don't you see? Hell is a place where you are finally cast away from God. The thirst that begins here now becomes a raging fire. That's all. Your conscience that is bothered here becomes a roaring lion. Your inability to find love here becomes an absolute raging forest fire. That's what hell is. It's the insatiability of spiritual thirst, a tremendous emptiness that makes you unhappy with everything here But it's nothing compared to what will happen when you finally get your way. What sin wants is to get away from God so you can be completely your own boss. When that finally happens, that little teensy bit of thirst will become a raging fire. That is what fell on Jesus. Jesus Christ took exactly what we would have experienced in hell forever. He got the fever. He got the convulsions. He got the raging thirst. He got the unquenchable fire. He said, I thirst. It all fell on him. Why? Well, because, of course, as it says in Isaiah, with his stripes, we are healed. He heals all our sins. He carries all our diseases. So just look, as the snake in the desert was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. How do you get saved by the snake? You just look. You don't walk up to it and sort of rub it three times. You don't go over to it and bow down three times. You don't pray a sinner's prayer in front of it. All you do is look. Years ago, says Keller, there was a guy named Charles Spurgeon who became a great Baptist preacher, but he was under agony in his soul. He was pretty sure he was a sinful person. He he didn't know how in the world God could accept him. He went, because of a snowstorm instead of his normal church, to a tiny little primitive Methodist chapel, and the pastor himself couldn't get there because of the snowstorm. Some poor deacon got up and had to preach. There were only four people present. And the deacon opened his text up, and he never preached a sermon before. The text was from Isaiah 45, and it said, 
Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none else. And he got up and said, Do you see what this is saying? You don't need to do anything in order to be saved. You just have to look. You don't say, Oh, I need to work up to you in love. To look is to admit you have no no loyalty in love. You don't have to walk over to God. You don't have to jump hoops to God. All you have to do is look. You have to admit he's done everything necessary for you. You just have to look and see that he has saved you. And Spurgeon began to say, wait a minute, I don't have to do. I just have to look. I just have to believe. I just have to receive. Because there were only four people in the service, finally the deacon looked down and he saw only one visitor. And he said, young man, you look miserable and you're going to stay miserable until you obey my text from the word. At that point, Spurgeon suddenly realized he had been running and jumping and somersaulting, and all God wanted him to do was look to Jesus and to admit he couldn't save himself. And that's how Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, one of the greatest preachers of all time, got saved. And that's, my friends, is how sin is remedied. We look to Jesus to be saved. We don't have to go touch the hem of his cloak. We don't have to say 10 prayers spinning around backwards. We don't have to beat our chest until God hears us. The work has been done by Jesus. In the same way, says Jesus, that the Israelites were saved from the venom of the snake by looking at the bronze serpent on the pole, so you and I are saved from the venom of sin by looking at Jesus Christ raised up on the cross crucified for our sins, dead and buried, and resurrected to eternal life. So I invite you, dear friends, listening to this podcast now, look to Jesus and be saved, not by your own merits or by your works or by your righteousness or by your good looks or by your money or anything else. Just simply now look to Jesus and be saved. Ask him to save you and he will, if you are asking him in wholehearted faith, He will save you, follow him to the ends of the earth, and he will bless you and reward you and be with you always. Amen. Let's go read some more scripture. Beginning in Psalm chapter 60, verse 1. God, you have rejected us. You've broken us down. You've been angry. Restore us. You've shaken the land and split it open. Heal its fissures for its shutters. You've made your people suffer hardship. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You've given a signal flag to those who fear you so that they can flee before the archers. Selah. Save with your right hand and answer me so that those who you love may be rescued. God has spoken in his sanctuary. I will celebrate. I will divide up Shechem. I will apportion the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. And Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. I throw my sandal on Edom. I shout in triumph over Philistia. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? God, haven't you rejected us? God, you do not march out with our armies. Give us aid against the foe, for human help is worthless. With God, we will perform valiantly. He will trample our foes. Psalm chapter 61, verse 1. God, hear my cry. Pay attention to my prayer. I call to you from the ends of the earth when my heart is without strength. Lead me to a rock that is high above me, for you have been a refuge for me, a strong tower in the place in the face of the enemy. I will dwell in your tent forever and take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. 
God, you have heard my vows. You have given a heritage to those who fear your name. Add days to the king's life. May his years span many generations. May he sit enthroned before God forever. Appoint faithful love and truth to guard him. Then I will continually sing of your name, fulfilling my vows day by day. Isaiah 10 verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send him against a godless nation. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, and to trample them down like clay in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he plans. It is his intent to destroy and to cut off many nations. For he says, Aren't all my commanders kings? Isn't Kalno like Carchemish? Isn't Hamath like Arpad? Isn't Samaria like Damascus? As my hand seized the kingdoms of worthless images, kingdoms whose idols exceeded those of Jerusalem and Samaria, and as I did to Samaria and its worthless images, will I not also do to Jerusalem and its idols? But when the Lord finishes all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. For he said, I have done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. I abolished the borders of nations and plundered their treasures like a mighty warrior. I subjugated the inhabitants. My hand has reached out as if into a nest to seize the wealth of the nations. Like one gathering abandoned eggs, I gathered the whole earth. No wing fluttered, no beak opened or chirped. Does an axe exalt itself above the one who chops with it? Does a saw magnify itself above the one who saws with it? It would be like a rod waving the ones who lift it. It would be like a staff lifting the one who isn't wood. Therefore, the Lord God of armies will inflict an emaciating disease on the well-fed of Assyria, and he will kindle a burning fire under its glory. Israel's light will become a fire and its holy one a flame. In one day it will burn and consume Assyria's thorns and thistles. He will completely destroy the glory of its forests and orchards as a sickness consumes a person. The remaining trees of its forest will be so few in number that a child could count them. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, Only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed. Justice overflows for throughout the land. The Lord God of armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. Therefore, the Lord God of armies says this, My people who dwell in Zion do not fear Assyria, though they strike you with a rod and raise their staff over you as the Egyptians did. In just a little while, my wrath will be spent and my anger will turn to their destruction. And the Lord of armies will brandish a whip against him as he did when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And he will raise his staff over the sea as he did in Egypt. On that day, his burden will fall from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because your neck will be too large. Assyria has come to Ayath and has gone through Migran, storing their equipment at Michmash. They crossed over at the ford, saying, We will spend the night at Geba. The people of Ramah are trembling. Those at Gibeah of Saul have fled. Cry aloud, daughter of Gallium. Listen, Lesha. Anathoth is miserable. Madmina has fled. 
The inhabitants of Gibim have sought refuge. Today, the, is- the Syrians will stand at Nob, shaking their fists at the mountain of daughter Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power, and the tall trees will be cut down. The high trees felled. He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon, with its majesty, will fall. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, The spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord lives, we will, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, it is, is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Well, my friends, may we take the advice of James 4.10. May we humble ourselves before the Lord and walk in the promise that he will exalt us. May the Lord bless you, dear friends. May he give you great grace and protection today. Good day to you and Godspeed.